This podcast was supported by the Pulitzer Center. Linda's life was fast-paced in California. Breakfast, school, work, frozen dinner, and she'd do it all over again the next morning. Before she knew it, 15 months had passed. One night, Linda's phone started buzzing nonstop. It was a weekend in mid-August 2022 when she received the news. Mexican law enforcement had detained 167 members of Pueblos Unidos, the narco group that killed her brother, Willy. On a call, she tells us she was able to recognize some of the men who used to operate in Ixtaro. These men were charged with carrying military-grade weapons that are illegal for civilian use in Mexico. The group was caught with 232 high-powered weapons, ammunition, along with some grenades and a couple of bulletproof vehicles. We obtained documents from authorities proving that at least 70% of them came from the U.S. But Linda is skeptical. She says that a lot of what the government does is just for show. Pues eso también me, me sigue llenando de tristeza porque siguen este, dañando más gente. It turns out that many of the leaders of Pueblos Unidos weren't detained. Linda fears that they could still be out there hurting people. We visited Ixtaro a few days after the rituals of Dia de Muertos, or Day of the Dead. People had gathered around Willie's grave, accompanied by live music, food, and even horses. Now, as we walk into the town cemetery, we see the leftovers of the big celebration. People gathered to honor the memory of their ancestors, in their homes and in many public places. Dozens of graves are decorated with colored paper wreaths. A statue of Jesus overlooks Willie's grave under a stone arch tinted gold by the sunset. His military cap hangs on a cross, its colors faded from the sun. We can hear children playing the soccer field next to the cemetery. In Mexico, life and death are in constant dance. There are still petals of orange and pasuchtil flowers on the ground from the celebration a few days ago. We walk through the cemetery with Willie's friends. One of them points at two graves a few meters from his. These are their relatives. Just like Linda, many people in Ixtaro are still grieving after the cartel's occupation of their town. Willie's tomb is surrounded by the graves of other victims who were also killed by narcos, including Ixtaro's town leader, who was killed for going against Pueblos Unidos' interests. The role of town leaders, or jefes de tenencia, consists in overseeing the avocado commerce, organizing holidays, social activities. They're like the mayor of a very small town. But it's a job no one wants to have. If their activities interfere with cartel business, it could cost them their lives. So in Ixtero, they came up with a solution, a group leadership, something similar to a council. Instead of a single person being at the helm and risking their own safety, now a group makes decisions together. Still, they all fear retaliation. They felt they were risking their lives just by telling us their stories. This series has taken us to many places, and now we'll show you how they're all connected. 
from the avocado fields in Michoacán, Mexico, to the vineyards in Napa, California. To the border towns where thousands try their luck at crossing. We'll take you to the NRA convention and to the homes of the families who have experienced grief on both sides of the border. I'm Toya Sarno-Jordan. And I'm Stefania Corby. This is the fifth and final episode of Caliber 60. Even though Pueblos Unidos no longer controls Ixtaro, people from town are still disappearing. The difference is, this no longer happens in the street in plain sight. Instead, the cartel waits until people leave to run errands in nearby towns. Some never come back. Others are found dead days later. In the months following Linda's escape, the group leadership in Ixtaro began taking small steps to regain control of their home. They banned guns from Ixtaro and are cautious of people from out of town. They won't make the same mistake twice. No queremos que entre nadie, pero sin armas porque este, a final de cuentas pues las armas fueron las que nos llevaron a, a esto. Locals now guard the checkpoints that serve as entrances to the town themselves, unarmed. After Willie was killed, the cartel took back the weapons they had sold in Ixtaro before they left. They knew the Mexican army was on its way. Se llevaron todas las armas que supuestamente ellos mismos nos vendieron. People in town spent a lot of money on those weapons, but it ended up being a false promise of protection. Like everyone else, Linda's family was forced to buy a rifle from the cartel for around $5,000. Según ellos, las dejaban baratas. 100,000 pesos parece que se las dieron a él. The same rifle would have cost around $700 in the U.S. Las grandes las traían ellos. Aquí había como que, que una carabina, que una pistolita, no sé. Estaban entre los 20,000 y 30,000 pesos, creo yo. Smuggled handguns were sold in Ixtaro for $1,000 to $1,500. Gun trafficking is a lucrative business. Just like drugs on their journey north, the further south weapons travel from the border, the more expensive they become. Irene Álvarez, who has been researching self-defense groups in different regions of Michoacán, explains that guns have become part of the culture in many of these communities. In these regions, AK-47s have replaced the shotguns farmers used to carry for protection. Some weapons have also taken on a cultural and aesthetic value, like a type of fashion. Forma parte del estilo, ¿no? De los hombres traer la pistola el día de fiesta, un cinturón con las cachas decoradas. Álvarez has observed that during parties, weapons don't go by unnoticed. Men wear special belts to show off their engraved handguns. She says a moment of masculine communion takes place after lunch, when all the men gather to polish their weapons. Es una cuestión estética, de status. Firearms also play a part in social status, which is why cartel leaders are known to carry guns with customized engravings, lathered in gold and encrusted with precious stones. No es una pistola cualquiera, es una pistola cuidadísima, con piedras eh, incrustadas, ¿no? Con todo un... Pues sí, una serie de elementos ahí que destacan el arma. So where do these extravagant weapons come from? Straight from Cali. Yeah. I got three AR-15s. That's what I'm 
At the 2022 NRA convention in Houston, we talked to a craftsman at the Colt booth. He spent the entire weekend engraving a single handgun. He told us that the piece takes around 350 hours to customize and can cost up to $100,000 each. Remember the lawsuit the Mexican government filed against 11 gun manufacturers in 2021? The one accusing them of marketing and selling weapons favored by organized crime? Well, Colt is one of the manufacturers named in the lawsuit. They make guns that drug lords fancy, like the gold-plated Super Emiliano Zapata 1911 caliber 38, engraved with one of Zapata's quotes, it's better to die standing than to live on your knees. This gun, manufactured and engraved in the U.S., was used to murder journalist Miroslava Breach, who reported on cartel violence and corruption. At the NRA convention, there's a sense of community among attendees. U.S. gun culture is uniquely woven into the country's identity. Whether you own a gun or not, you have an opinion. The Second Amendment was written in 1791. This is 2022. 1791 was 220, more than 220 years ago. But for many, their freedom is closely tied to the Second Amendment and the right to own weapons for self-defense. Well, it's, it's a freedom thing. Um, guns, to me, ultimately means uh, freedom. Firearms are part of our uh, constitutional heritage, and they ultimately um, represent a portion of our American freedom. American weapons have created more chaos and freedom in the countries these guns have reached providing firepower to gangs in Central and South America. At the convention, a man offered us a solution to Mexico's gun violence. He thinks an armed population could overthrow the cartels. If Mexico allowed their people to have handguns and protect themselves, the cartel doesn't have any people. Like the city of Mexico, you have 20 million people. Cartels, all together, they don't have 20 million people. In some ways, the U.S. is already trying that. It's the only country in the world that has more guns than people. But that hasn't come without a price. Already. Pull the trigger, the gun goes off. Release the trigger, the firearm goes off again. A sales rep showed us how to work an AR-15, the same style of rifle used in the Uvalde school shooting. Uvalde is a small town in Texas, located 54 miles from the U.S.-Mexico border, rarely mentioned in nationwide media. Now, it's known for the deadliest school shooting in Texas history, where 19 children and two teachers lost their lives. How much is a 10-year-old Protests outside the convention were held throughout the weekend, days after the fatal shooting took place. We hope to ask the 11 manufacturers about the Mexican lawsuit, but the ones we interviewed refused to comment. So far, there have been over 13,000 deaths caused by weapons in 2023, according to the Gun Violence Archive. Here's Jonathan Lowy, founder and president of Global Action on Gun Violence. 
This is a result of, of the U.S. policy choices to not regulate guns and to, you know, prioritize the interests of the, of the gun industry over, you know, the lives of children and others and other countries. Lowy has spent the last 25 years advocating for more restrictive policies on behalf of victims and survivors of mass shootings. Follow the money. You know, there is a financial interest in promoting more gun sales. They sell guns that are headed for the cartels. They really uh, don't care as long as the money keeps pouring in. While the U.S. has gotten used to mass shootings carried out by lone gunmen, gangs across Latin America have used these American guns to gain control. We'll be right back. Support for this podcast comes from the Catena Foundation, making ambitious public radio journalism projects under TPR's Border and Immigration News Desk possible. Welcome back to Caliber 60. One big question we still haven't answered is exactly how gun trafficking works. It is a very compartmentalized operation. That's Yeva Yusunita, professor at Brown University. She has spent years researching gun trafficking for her book Exit Wounds. Yusunita explains that if a member of a criminal group in Mexico needs a gun, what commonly happens is that they contact someone inside their organization who is close to the border. The people who are asked to get guns from the United States usually work with someone in the United States. Maybe someone in Arizona, maybe someone in Texas. This person arranges a purchase, but more people are involved. These are U.S. citizens. They go into gun stores usually, and they purchase guns with the money that they receive. They're called straw buyers, and they obtain guns legally. Once purchased, a different person runs a gun to the border. The people who transport guns usually wait until the straw buyers complete larger purchases. Then another person moves them across the border. By the time the weapons reach Mexico, at least five people have partaken in the trafficking. So the value of the gun really increases during this very long operation, which can take, which can take weeks. Usually, the, the price of the gun can increase three to four times. Smugglers hide weapons inside car doors, diesel tanks, boxes covered with clothes, or they disassemble them. Traffickers run the risk of being stopped by Mexican officers. But this safeguard is ineffective. The amount of weapons seized this way is very small. There really are no controls to come south. So to believe that the firearms come to Mexico any other way other than the, the U.S. and Mexican border uh, is a false belief. It, it's wrong. There's no inspection on the Mexican side. That's Timothy Sloan, ex-ATF attaché in Mexico. He says the U.S. does little to stop what's coming out of their border. Once the weapons reach Mexico, they're largely sold through WhatsApp groups. People who are buying guns, they do use WhatsApp. That, that is their business, to deliver guns to places further away from the border and then offer them to whichever buyer will offer more money. 
This business is largely controlled by cartels. They authorize the trade of weapons in the regions they dominate. Sloan adds that most of the weapons do come from border states, but not all of them were purchased there. Statistically, through our tracing program in Mexico, uh, as the agency head, I can tell you we had firearms in Mexico from all 50 states, including Hawaii and Alaska. But the data collected by this tracing system is exclusively for the use of U.S. agencies. When four Americans were kidnapped in a Mexican border city and two of them killed, that brought immediate attention to the severe organized crime problem in that community. In March 2023, a group of Americans crossed into the dangerous border city of Matamoros, one of whom sought to undergo a cosmetic medical procedure. It took authorities less than two weeks to trace one of the weapons used in the deadly abduction. It was purchased in the U.S. by a man who admitted knowing the weapon would reach the cartel, and he was paid $100 to do it. The speed with which authorities trace a weapon caused indignation among Mexicans. The American gun tracing system has rarely been used to reach justice for the thousands of homicides that happen every year in Mexico. Joshua Blank is research director of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin. He believes something called the Tiard Amendment, first enacted in 2003, has been hindering accountability on both sides of the border. In some ways, I think that's part of the point. It's not so much about what it is that we could do, but it's about how little we are doing. The amendment prohibits the ATF from releasing any information from its tracing database to anyone other than law enforcement agencies. As new laws continue to make gun ownership even more accessible, it's easier for weapons to fall into the hands of organized crime. The lawsuit the Mexican government filed seeks to hold U.S. gun manufacturers responsible for the damage their products are causing abroad. The defendants, the companies that the government of Mexico is suing for their negligence that actively facilitate the illicit traffic of their firearms into Mexico enjoy of the immunities awarded by the Protection of Lawful in Commerce in Arms Act. That's Alejandro Celorio, Mexico's lead attorney in the lawsuit. He says the case was dismissed because the manufacturers are protected by the Protection of Lawful Commerce in Arms Act, or PLACA. This law, passed in 2005, gives firearms manufacturers and dealers immunity from being held liable for crimes committed with their weapons. After the lawsuit was dismissed, the Mexican government pushed back. They appealed the decision and filed a new lawsuit, this time going after small dealers in Arizona. We're suing the points of sale. We're suing five um, firearm companies that sell actively to straw purchasers that then give these weapons to organized crime in Mexico. Celorio says their legal strategy aims to reveal that the protection offered by these laws in the U.S. causes great harm in many countries where guns end up. On top of all these issues, the agencies that are supposed to limit this flow of weapons also face serious challenges from rogue individuals within their ranks. In my four years, we had DEA agents arrested for trafficking firearms in the United States. State Department employees arrested, right? Border Patrol agents arrested. And yes, ATF agents. I had several employees, one of which was trafficking firearms in Mexico. So you can't throw stones. That was Timothy Sloan again. The ATF has struggled to perform their duties in the U.S. and Mexico due to limited resources and policies curbing gun control. We had approximately 100 suspected firearms traffickers identified 
that nobody was investigating because we didn't have the manpower. As the ATF traced seized weapons, fentanyl was, and still is, fueling a rampant opioid crisis in the U.S. There was nothing but finger-pointing. It was, you know, Americans are killing Mexicans. And the Americans were saying, well, you're killing us with the fentanyl. Cartels are even trading drugs for guns. Leaders of Los Chapitos, a faction within the Sinaloa cartel, were charged by the U.S. Department of Justice in April 2023 with trading fentanyl for hundreds of AR-15s, among other things. The demand for drugs in the U.S. fuels the demand for weapons in Mexico. An estimated 200,000 weapons cross illegally into Mexico every year. This case is particularly relevant for understanding how access to firearms is a key component to managing illicit economies. That's Cecilia Farfán Méndez, co-founder of Mexico Violence, a think tank that researches violence trends in Mexico. Organized crime operates in almost every lucrative business in Mexico. It first flourished with drugs, then avocados, and they now operate many legal businesses. It has morphed into a much more complex system. Yeva Yusionita explains that weapons allow them to diversify. They're used as tools of extortion, threats, and violence to carry out all of their businesses. Because nothing makes you want to leave your home as much as a, a gun pointed at you. While Mexico puts the blame on the U.S. for fueling their bloodshed, it's also been proven that members of the Mexican army sold weapons to a cartel. In 2022, a group of hackers under the name Wakamaya Leaks revealed data taken from email servers of the Mexican armed forces and became one of the biggest leaks in history. Top law enforcement officer was taking $250,000 a month to protect the cartel. But above all, uh, this has revealed a ton about Mexico's military. We've learned that despite being tasked with fighting the drug war, some of its soldiers sold weapons to the cartels. The hack revealed that the Mexican Secretariat of National Defense had knowledge of a military officer selling weapons and tactical gear to armed groups. The flow of weapons in Mexico is supposedly controlled by the military. There is a law in Mexico since 2017 that commands the Mexican state to actually have a registry, a public transparent registry of the size of the gun market. This is Lisa Sanchez, executive director of Mexico United Against Crime, an organization that promotes human rights, citizen security, and works with drug policy issues. And that particular registry either does not exist yet, which would be an omission by the Mexican state, or if it does exist, it's not public, which is again um, an omission uh, on the side of the Mexican authorities not to provide this information. She says the lack of transparency from authorities also impedes having accurate data. There's an estimate of 15 million weapons circulating in Mexico. Around 85% of these guns were trafficked. As gun violence continues to spin out of control on both sides of the border, the Biden administration introduced the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act in 2022, after the shooting in Uvalde. Jonathan Lowy from Global Action on Gun Violence believes it's a small step in the right direction. There were some good things in it. I mean, making trafficking a, a, a federal crime, making cross-border trafficking a crime. Although it's been criticized for not being aggressive enough, the bill is considered by many to be one of the most significant gun control legislations in the last two decades. 
Before this bill became law last year, the punishment for arms trafficking was unlikely to include jail time. If you're trafficking narcotics and you're and you're traffic, I mean, you traffic five, 10 kilos of cocaine, you're probably going to go to the penitentiary for the rest of your life. Ever. You're never going to come home. You traffic 100, 500,000 guns, you're probably going to get probation. Which brings us back to Linda, one of the thousands of innocent people impacted by gun violence in Mexico, forced to leave her home to seek asylum in the place that produces these weapons. But even though she has a strong case, she and many others in the same situation still have the deck stacked against them. It's never been easy for Mexicans to win asylum in the United States. Yael Shacher is director for the Americas and Europe at Refugees International. She explains that Mexicans in the U.S. have always been perceived as economic migrants seeking a better life, not necessarily fleeing violence. We actually haven't had a robust conversation in the United States about how to treat Mexican asylum seekers. But the Biden administration, it hasn't yet released a regulation that would clarify specifically how asylum officers are supposed to adjudicate those kinds of claims and make it clear, like, this is what the standard is. Shahar says there are political factors that make asylum difficult for Mexicans. One being that the U.S. actually considers Mexico to be a safe place for migrants from Central and South America to seek asylum. So letting more migrants in from Mexico could undercut that. Another factor depends on location. In Texas, for example, immigration judges are some of the harshest. Whether or not you win asylum depends on a lot of other things, how good your lawyer is presenting your case, which immigration judge you're in front of, you know, if you can appeal. After everything Linda and her family have endured, their fate still hinges on factors out of their control. This story is just one of thousands of Mexicans fleeing the bloodshed American guns are perpetuating. Linda misses Ixtaro, but knows she can't go back. Her life is still in danger. Back in Ixtaro, Linda's house has been abandoned since she left. Linda told us how much she misses the plants from her garden especially her chiles. And they're still there, bright red, guarding the entrance to her home. Spiders dangle from cobwebs as the afternoon sun breaks into the house through cracked windows. Unused bullets are scattered in the kitchen while dirty dishes are piled in the sink, as if someone didn't get to them the night before. The children's soccer cleats lie in the middle of the living room. Family pictures are still framed on the bedroom walls. You can feel the sense of threatening urgency with which they had to leave and the lingering pain this family has endured. Linda agreed to share her story with us to shed light on what is happening in Michoacán and to help people understand the human story behind the deeply politicized issues of guns, drugs and immigration. We hope that Linda's story helped you understand these issues in a new way. Thank you for listening. Caliber 60 is reported and produced by Stefania Corpi and me, Toya Sarno-Jordan. Producer Jacob Rosati created all the sound design and original scoring for this podcast. Audio editing by Bennett Smith. 
Our editor is Yvette Benavides, Associate Editor of TPR and TPR Noticias. And Dan Katz is TPR's Vice President of News and our Executive Producer. This is a production of Texas Public Radio with support from the Pulitzer Center and the Catena Foundation. Until next time. Thank you.